Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. I'm, of course, Josh Blaster, and we have another great cast for you this week. Our topic tonight is going to be talking to a veteran of the game industry. He has been in the industry making titles for over 30 years now, including a collection of arcade, casual, and casino games. You may recognize him probably the most for the arcade game Rampage. He currently runs the studio Game Refuge, Inc., and we're going to be talking about his history as well as thoughts on design. So please welcome to the podcast, Brian Collin. Hi there, everybody. Hi, Brian. to be here today. It is a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in uh, these far south Chicago suburbs, and... Uh, I'm. Uh, you're keeping me from jumping in the pool, but I forgive you. <laughs> right now, over here, it is uh, rainy and uh, miserable all day. So I think you beat me at least on that one <laughs> for uh, right I'll, now. <laughs> I'll try to spread a little sunshine then. <laughs> but it is a pleasure to have you on for the cast. For those of you listening to us right now, I met Brian at the New Jersey GamerCon last year. That would be in 2018. We had a chance to finally connect this year. And, of course, everyone being so busy, we finally had enough time to, I guess, stop playing email tag and get a conversation going. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a crazy year. Uh, with the uh, the movie that came out a couple of years ago, there, was a, there were a lot of... Um, a lot of really fun demands on my time outside the normal workload. Mm-hmm. So it's been a fun year. It's been crazy. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly relate with all the stuff that I'm doing with Game Wisdom, but that would fill another podcast. <laughs> but uh, it's great to have you on. As we were just saying, you've been in the game industry for over 30 years now. And as we were talking about before the stream, my audience usually includes people who are either in the industry, like independent developers or people who are established, or first-time devs and students who want to know more about design. And I'm sure they'll be more than happy to listen about some of the stuff that you've done over the various years. It, it's, been, it's been an incredible run, an incredible mm-hmm. ride. I stumbled into this industry at just the right time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, what I've learned about making games and game design and you know the best methods, and it, I love talking to game design. Oh, yes, and you will do just fine on these casts. We just did a, a stream with somebody the other day who said, I like talking game design. And I was like, well, do you have a soft stop point? No, I can just keep talking. And it was like two hours later, he was still ready to keep going. And my voice was like about dead at that point. Yeah, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to stop me. I, have a ten- I tend to get enthusiastic about this, and I do tend to ramble. So <laughs> just you know, reach through the uh, internet and smack me if I start getting too far off topic. I I got it there. <laughs> but uh, since this is your first time on, for people listening, after my little intro for you, Brian, for those listening to us right now, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, your background and anything that I miss in terms of kind of your history in the game industry? Okay, well, um, yeah, I started in 1982. I uh, joined the Valley Midway's young development, in-house development company after they had that success with Pac-Man. Um, and I went to school. I went to school for film. I was actually a filmmaker, um, did a lot of uh, live action films, and I did one animated film that won a lot of international awards. And I saw an ad one day at the Valley Midway 
company and I'm thinking pinball. What do they need an animator for? <laughs> and I thought, oh, because I'm a cell painter, they need me to paint on the back of pinball glass. This is where my head was at, you know, in my early 20s. So I went in and they said, no, we want to hire you as an animator for video games. And I'm thinking, Pac-Man, really? Because I have a very uh, detailed pen and ink cartoon style. And I, you know, I was, I had an ad, I was working as, you know, a freelance advertising artist and, and doing little bits and pieces at the time. And I really didn't want the job, but they were willing to pay me like real money rather than like the free beer and popcorn I was doing most of my work for. And when I hung up the phone after they offered me the job, I, you know, I tell, tell this, it's the truth. I, I choked up. I turned to a friend and said, that's it. Childhood is over. I've got a real job because, <laughs> and I was wrong and I was so wrong. It, childhood has gone on forever and it's yes. never been anything like a real job. <laughs> um, and, and I realized that within days, within weeks of getting in, even with their very crude, uh, creation tools, uh, that we had to use back in those days and seven and a half inch floppies and, uh, uh, little thumb buttons and wheels and, you know, one by one dialing in bits, you know, one thumb rotation at a time. But I worked on a, it, it was agonizing physically almost to do this stuff just to print out one pixel and on the screen. But I worked with a guy named Bob Dinnerman, who was the uh, programmer and designer on a game called Discs of Tron, which was the follow-up to the Tron game, which was the uh, group's first game as a group. And it convinced his vision, the fact that he wanted to do so much with so little. Uh, I mean, in that game, I think we, we were allowed a single palette of 16 colors to do everything. And the fact that he was asking me to push against the the box of, you know, the limitations, I was, I was hooked from day one, uh, or, you know, within a few weeks, I was hooked on this new medium because as an animator, you're drawing for weeks, you're, you're, you're writing a story, you're drawing for weeks, you're filming in on the animation stand for days, you're sending it away to the lab, you're getting it back, you're seeing your mistakes, you got to start over again. And here in this new medium, I'm creating stuff in the morning and I'm seeing it animate in the game in the afternoon. So I was I was totally hooked. It was the best time to stumble into this industry from an animator's perspective, from an uh, from the perspective, too, of that group was out. It was an in-house group, but it was like down the street in a little tired uh, little office uh, building and management and the business side, even though we were an in-house at a production facility, technically in-house, they left us alone, which was like one of the best things you can do with a, a small group of creatives. There may be were a dozen of us, and management would come in just every few weeks or every few months. And other than that, it was all very peer-to-peer. -peer. It was all, hey, you want to try this? Sure, why not? No, you can't do that. Well, why can't I do that? Well, let's try this. Well, let's. And it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time because we all, I mean, we, were, we weren't quite the animal house. We weren't that bad, but we were very much, it felt very collegiate. It felt very much like we were doing these things and we were, we were figuring it out as we went, mm -hmm. but we were a production facility. So we had very severe limited deadlines. So in that time, 
in that those early days, 1982 for me, um, I'm working on what would end up being some of the biggest titles of the 80s. You know, I worked on games like Dissatron and Spy Hunter and Sarge and and um, and but we had to get them out on time or people were laid off. So it was a we had these two disciplines going on that we could try anything we wanted. But if we wanted to put something in and we're getting near test, we're spending the night there. We're spending Mm -hmm. days upon days. So it was a great, great time to learn discipline and but still let the creativity flow. And I'm rambling now, so I'm going to (laughs) stop. But again, it's very fascinating to talk to developers who have been in the industry. Like, again, like for a lot of the people like. More of my more current guests I've had on with Game Wizard and the people I've spoken to have been developers who have either gone in this decade or in the past, or I mean the past decade. And I think one of the more fascinating aspects is the fact that you're not the only one to say this to me, Brian, that when you first got in the game industry, like you didn't have like a background in video games because there really wasn't anything in back then, like in the 70s and 80s, as a quote-unquote, you know, formal game design or a video game profession. No, and one of the things I used to tell people a lot before there were schools, because I was Mm -hmm. hiring, once I formed my own company, I'm hiring people that uh, I'm pulling in, but they hadn't been, you know, now there's, you know, everybody's got a game design school, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, I'm not interested particularly in what, you know, Game design schools teach you tool usage. I can teach you that. Mm-hmm. I want your life experience. I want you to bring in what you think is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, and that was that was why I think those early days were as or part of the reason they were as creative as they were is there hadn't been. Uh, I mean, every time I started to do a new game, the first thing I did was look around to make sure there was nothing else like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is counterintuitive to the corporate mentality today is the yes. only thing they want to do is if that thing's making money, let's follow it, just like the film industry does or the television industry. Whereas back in these early days, we were given the luxury, if only uh, maybe given is the wrong way. We we took advantage of the fact that they weren't watching us too close to kind of dial our our choices into, at least with my games, I want to do something that's nothing like what anybody else is doing. And we could do that back then. Yes. Even by the mid 80s, they were starting to tighten the knot and and game like Rampage, which even just a couple years before when I came up with it, we all knew we had the next year's number one hit. We wrote I wrote that in the very first line of the game design document and management went to, you know, we all were super excited. We, we had this thing. We knew it was brilliant. And we, you know, rushed into our boss's office and, you know, he goes, no, no, you know, I, uh, that's, there's no, that's not like anything. And we've got other things we want to chase. And this was only like maybe a year after we were still creating total things out of total cloth. And I had to go up several levels and actually the upper management Bally all got fired. I mean, myself mm. and Jeff Nauman, the programmer on that game, uh, we started working on it anyway, even though we were told no. And just by happy coincidence, upper management all got fired within a few weeks of us proposing <laughs> the game. And the new management, um, new president of the company said, came in and said, well, uh, you know, everybody's job is safe. And I just want you all to know I've got an open door policy. And you can guess who is waiting outside <laughs> his door the next morning at 8.59 because... Uh, I was the very first meeting that guy took as he took control of the company. And thank goodness he said yes, because then Rampage went on to break all kinds of records of its day. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the most, like, 
interesting parts about like game development. Like again, like back in the eighties, maybe like sort of dying out in the nineties, as you said, like back then there was no such thing as like genres of games. It was basically I have an idea, I'm gonna turn it into a game. Right. And it's such a like I said, it's so crazy when we contrast that today. Like even like for myself when I play video games the first thing that always comes to my mind is, what is this game emulating? You know, what is this game trying to be? Is it supposed to be like another Mario game? Is it supposed to be a first-person shooter, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And then, like when we think about games back in the late seventies into the eighties, like they were like one of one back then. Like there was no other game to really compare them to. Right. I mean, uh, the again, that's why this was a perfect, perfect. Um, venue for me to create entertainment. I always like making people laugh. I always like entertaining people. And, uh, and luckily, I mean, I don't, I didn't have the weight of 10,000 games coming before me like a designer does today. I, I could look out there and said, okay, what, you know, what isn't there that I want to play? Cause if I was having fun playing a competitor's game, I wouldn't want to make a game that was like it or similar or like the next one. I would just play their game. I was I was lucky enough to be able to make games for my own amusement. And when I was really lucky, everybody else thought so, too. So they'd be a success. But they all weren't. I mean, uh, you know, I've got some huge turkeys out there that uh, most people have never seen. But uh, for the most part, I've been very lucky. Most of my games, uh, most of my games hit an audience, hit a nerve hit a nerve with one audience or another. Mm-hmm. And what you just said there about not trying to chase somebody else's game, as you said a few minutes ago, that has a very big difference with the AAA industry these last few years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the And I, I, you know, I should say that, that people are always surprised that I don't really follow the industry. I've been blessed with, you know, I stumbled in at the right time. I worked for Midway for 10 years. Then we went out and formed our own company and continued to do games for Midway and then for casino groups and anybody and everybody that would tap us on the shoulder. If they, if the idea looked like something that we could contribute to and make our own and have fun with and make the client happy, we did it. Mm -hmm. So I've never really taken a, a good business approach in that, um, follow the industry, see what's going to be next, go, let's mm-hmm. develop games for this system. If someone comes to us, we look at it and we go, great. So it's been all over the place. And it's really, it's been a wonderful way to make a living for 37 years. Um, it, but it, I'm not real well informed. Like people will come to me and say, well, what do you think about the, and then fill in the blank. And I just, my eyes glaze over. It's like, well, I don't, you know, I've never done a game for that system. So I don't really know. You know, I don't know any, I can't give any more insight than you've already got. I read the same articles and that's about all I know. Now, and just to clarify for the people listening to us, when did you start Game Refuge? Uh, I, I joined Midway in 982 and I started Game Refuge in 92. Okay. Um, we left um, in about 89. Uh, we were halfway through the the video game Arch Rivals. We, after Rampage, I did uh, Xenophobe. And then I did Arch Rivals, uh, again with Jeff Nauman, Arch Rivals. And uh, um, we were halfway, more than halfway through that when our biggest competitor, Williams, bought Valley, bought Midway. And um, 
I was told later by a by a Williams executive, and I don't know if the story is true, but I love to tell it anyway, is that the sales from Arch Rivals, which was released as a Williams Valley Midway game, paid for the buyout single handedly. <laughs> so uh, and then we did it. We did Pigskin after that for uh, uh, new Williams Valley Midway. And then um, Electronic Arts had been pestering me for about a year, not pestering me, but nicely asking me for about a year to come out and work for them. But I did not want to live in California, and they were unwilling to let me work remotely. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'd been working remotely even here in Chicagoland. I built an office in my on my uh, half acre and had been only been coming into the office, you know, two days a week, uh, so like from the mid '80s. And but EA wouldn't let me do that. And finally, after about a year of negotiation, they said, "Well." Um, you don't want to move to California. I, you know, we don't want a, a remote employee. What if we gave you the money just to start your own company? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. I could do that. Sure. That'd be fun. So game refuge, uh, Jeff Nauman and I left, uh, midway, uh, in, uh, 92 and, uh, went out to EA and pitched our first game to them, which was for the Sega Genesis system. Um, and that was general chaos. Uh, the Sega Genesis 16-bit, the world's first real real-time strategy game, and uh, and that ended up being their, I believe, their number one independent, non-licensed game that year. I think they made, they actually developed the four-player control for that game. And I, I guess one question that I have for you, Brian, I'm sure some of our uh, people listening to us are wondering this as well. In terms of, I guess, like the programming or the development of a game, again, you've been doing this for over 30 years now. Has game development, at least at like the basic level, changed that much since the 80s? Uh, yes and no. Um, from what I read, it's changed dramatically. And even though there's you know, spectacular, spectacular games coming out, um, I believe it's changed for the worse in terms of individuals working in the industry. I've talked to people who, you know, they came to me 20 years ago to see how to get into the industry. And then they get into the industry and they knew how I worked and my team and my company works is where everything is peer to peer. Everybody, Mm. you know, wanders into everybody's space and gives input. And everybody, when I hire somebody at Game Refuge, I tell them, you know, you may come in as a programmer, but you're going to be learn to become a designer because it works better mm-hmm. for everyone to have that kind of input. You get that sort of synchronicity where just one little offhand comment by anybody in the room or that's seeing the thing can make make or break this thing. And I believe my understanding is that the corporate mentality and I again, over the years, the people we've dealt with over the years um uh, they hire individuals and they want to keep them in that spot. Mm-hmm. Now we have the game designer over here. We have the head of the software department here. We have the head of the art department here. I was, we were actually hired by a group um, who shall remain nameless that was having trouble getting short little games out in under a year. And half of the games wouldn't earn enough to, to be released. And they were seeing that, you know, uh, they knew us actually knew knew us from our arcade day, days and asked if we could come in and help their team learn. And when I got there, I saw what the problem was. You literally, they actually had an artist, animator, and a programmer who are working on the same game in the same room, 
But if they wanted to add anything to the game, they had to get out of their chairs and walk down to their department heads at the other end of the uh, um, uh, facility who would then meet and decide whether or not it was the right thing to do. I mean, and then they wonder why the game isn't getting done. Now, for that same group, I did 14 games in 18 months, myself and like four other people, maybe maybe half dozen other people. But and that was the way we kind of showed them how it needs to work, because if you are if you are adding all these levels of middle management that you're forcing your creatives to go through, mm -hmm. the spontaneity is lost. The insight is lost. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I in those early days, everything, like I, I think I said earlier, was very much peer to peer, um, accidental or on purpose. It was the way to learn to design games. I al always tell people that I became a game designer out of self-defense. Because as an animator, I'm working on basically, basically putting my fingers on everything that's being produced. And so were all of the animators. And you find out that a game that is well-designed or at least well-conceived or well-thought-out, working with that guy or with that team, um, it's or, who is, or working with a guy who's receptive to input versus working with a guy who simply says, no, try this, that didn't work. No, try this, that didn't work. No, try this, that didn't work. One's much more fun to work on than the other. And so I became a game designer out of self-defense because I wanted everything I, I'm lazy. But if I'm working, I'm working till the wee hours in the morning and I want that game to be released. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if the team isn't focused on that end result, then by gosh, I'm going to start from day one and say, this is what we got to be focusing on. It's got to be fun for the player and it's got to make money for the operator. And those are two very different things because the player wanted to live forever and the operator wanted him off in 30 seconds. Yes. So it was a it was a way to learn to make games. And I don't know that I could design. We've done some big games. I've done like games that are like three year projects with 45 people on them. And and they were huge and they were fun to do. But my 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 love is still the game that is, okay, let's take this, let's make it fun, let's make it funny, and let's get it done in under nine months. Let's get it done in under six months, maybe a year, maybe. And that's one of the things that I've heard from a lot of people, like especially in terms of development in the independent space, about what's attracted them is the very fact that it becomes that personal way, that peer-to-peer, -peer, as you said, Brian, of being able to design a game, that you're not building a game by committee or you're not building right. it you know, with somebody that you're never going to be able to speak to. It's everyone having their own skills and right. being able to develop them out as well. And it's one of the things that I think a lot of people, especially uh, newcomers who want to get in the game industry, don't necessarily think about when it comes to working at a major studio. Because as you said, and as a lot of people who are like kind of my regulars listening know, when you work at an EA or Activision or any major company, if you're hired to be a programmer, you're going to be programming. Like there's right. no, there's nothing else to it like that. Right. It's even a niche within a programming. You're oh, doing yes. this type of thing. I mean, like I started to say before, and I think I distracted myself, but like guys that came to me that they were kids of friends who said they want to get in this industry. And then they go into the industry. And what 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 are you doing now? Hey, you're in there. You're working for this big studio. What are you doing? I make water effects. <laughs> and that's all I do. Three hundred sixty five days a year. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, they, they make more money than I do. 
But I feel like, you know, part of the magic that what they thought they were getting into mm-hmm. when they used to come and visit my studio, um, you know, they lost out on. That's one of the things that I think, you know, that's why I said when you asked the question, I said yes and no, because mm-hmm. indies have got a lot of those advantages, at least from a creative standpoint, yes. a true indie group. The downside is I was getting paid. It wasn't a ton of money, but I I did not have to keep a job, a day job at Target back then, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, and then work in the evening. That makes it a lot tougher for the indies. But at least, guys, if you're working on this thing with a small team, know that you've got the best creative environment there is yes. to make that game. And just, you know, set your sights on something you can get done and save the bigger things for the next time around. Get the thing done. Keep your enthusiasm. Let it see you through to the end. And especially if you got to work on it on your own dime and on your own time. Mm-hmm. Maintain that enthusiasm because that is the best design methodology is a small team where everybody's got the input. Yes. And like over the last seven years of doing Game Wisdom, I have spoken to at this point hundreds of developers. Many of them are, or the majority of them are in the independent space. And the one thing that I always hear from them is that the games they're making are the games they want to make. Like this right. is their dream. Like they couldn't, like it's impossible to imagine not making that game. And I'm sure you agree with this as well. Like the passion has just been such a driving force of the independent space this past decade. Right. It, the the game, the art of making a game. I mean, I mean, I am a designer. I am. Uh, you know, uh, people talk about you know, you lead designer. Yes, lead designer. Is it your content? Is it your content? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. But like I say, I look at. Everyone, I, I hope that everyone who's working on the game enjoys the same thing I do. And if they do, everybody's having fun. And if everybody's having fun, the game ends up being fun. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked on enough. I've, I've done close to 90 titles over the last 37 years. And, you know, we've had our turkeys. and But the vast majority did what they were supposed to do for the player, for the client, for us. They were fun to create. They're fun to play. Um, and some of them, and not all of them, the, crea- the creative challenge is beyond the gameplay. Um, I think I mentioned for the arcade world, people see the arcade game and whether or not it's fun for the player is all anybody thinks about. But if that thing didn't earn, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have got produced. So yep. as a designer back in those days, I had to keep the client, in this case, my company, their goal was it's got to get enough people and they got to put in another quarter. And then you'd come up with the tricks to make that happen, you know. And in my mm-hmm. case, it was a lot of times it was humor. But then we also did other wonderful, clever things, not just me, but in the team to get that next quarter halfway out of the pocket before the game ends. And then moving on to other types of games, whether they're casino games or um, – or, uh, um, uh, Facebook games or or PC games, console games. It's not it's not always the gameplay that's the coolest creative challenge. That for me as a designer, you know, I, I had a company come to me once and they wanted to do a game that promoted their product, and they said we want to do it as a video game, but nobody that's playing this plays video games, and nobody play that plays everybody that plays this is going to be a drunk conventioner with a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And 
They st- and then my job is, okay, these people don't even necessarily like games, but I got to suck them in and I got to make them laugh and I got to make them feel like they're kicking butt driving this vehicle down this mountainside, whether or not they actually have the skill. And that was its own creative challenge in, its, in itself that, that attracted me. And that game ran for nine years at, at, the, uh, you know, at the convention. So uh, with thousands of people a week lining up to play it. So the creative challenge for a designer is not just gameplay. And I think a lot of people miss that. I mean, sometimes it's just flat out sales. Sometimes it's something that's underneath that, you know, okay, the client's trying to do this. What can you do to make that happen? That creative challenge is part of what is fun for a designer. And if I forget in the next few minutes, Brian, please remind me, I definitely want to talk more about kind of the arcade and casino design and how those two apply. But yeah, it's definitely, like, as you were saying, trying to, I guess, make that game that's appealing to consumers, but in the same breath, obviously earn enough money for your client or for independent developers listening for themselves has always been that struggle. And there's a question that I want to ask you, and this is something that I've talked to a few developers about like in the independent space, and that it's this idea of the art versus the business. Like There are people out there who view making a video game as these two separate elements, that you either design a game for passion or you design a game for profit, and never the two shall meet. And like from a lot of like the developers I've spoken to who have kind of been able to have a success in the industry, they've always viewed it as kind of the combination of the two. And I want to get your thoughts on this, especially with your experience in the industry. Well, I think I think you've hit it right there. Uh, yeah, there are people who will swear up and down it's the passion, and people who swear up and down it's a business, and. Both of those groups are elitists. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't understand that it's both, that one doesn't exist without the other, and that even though I may be lean way more towards the passion side than the business side, I understand that the business side is a necessary evil, maybe from my point of view, but it's not. It's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. The fact that someone is taking their money and willing to put it out there so I can run with my passion, yep. uh, that's tremendous. I understand. they, And that's why the first thing, whenever a new client comes to us, the first thing I say is, tell me what you want. And I'm not talking as much about the game as what your goal is for this thing. And then I'll tell you what you need and whether or not I'm the right guy for you. Because um, it's a very different thing. If I think somebody can do a game, if someone is doing a game for this reason that you know, I, I really, I'm not going to bring much to this. Um, I, you, you, you want it, the, what you're looking for, someone else can do and have more fun with it, or they can easily get it, or you can get it cheaper. I'll send them away. I mean, I want to, I want, I'm, you know, crazy that way. In that's in that uh, regard, I'm a terrible businessman. Um, but I've been lucky. I've been fortunate enough that, that I've been able to, keep doing this for as long as I have, even with the bad businessman that I am. And every, every, with every new contract, you learn a little more, you know, you get screwed this way in that contract, you won't get screwed that way next time. So you you learn over the years. So I'm, I'm a better businessman than I ever was, but I wish back in the day I'd taken business classes in college. 
Um, you know, I, I took almost every kind of collegiate course there was back in the day uh, just because I loved college. And but I never strayed over to the business side because I thought, what am I going to need that for? I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I'm an artist. And and when I talk to indie people now taking classes at the tens of thousands of schools around the country right now, one of the things I've found, much to my surprise, is that they do not teach the business side in college. Hmm. Uh, and more than or they teach it at a, uh, a very small percentage of what you learn in in uh, game schools is the business side, which I think is terrible. Um, I was in a conference last fall in which I was in I was with um, uh, another old school developer and we were sitting there talking about the old days and the new days. And at one point, you know, I started asking the the guys on the other side of the stage, you know, what and then the entire audience. Well, you know, you guys are all in school now and some of you going to some of the best schools in the world by reputation. What do they teach you about the business side? And virtually it was unanimous in a 300 seat auditorium. They don't teach them anything. So it's a very important part that I hope schools will step up and start teaching because otherwise we're just grinding out fodder for these big corporate mills, which, hey, you get the job and you like the money and you can do the work. That's great. But um, the day of my day when I got to do all my passion and not have to worry about anything other than my paycheck and just my my single company's business line, which was fairly simple, you know, make make sure it earned money. Um, I was lucky. I I wish I had answers for people on what is the way to go about it now, Um, because I don't have the answers. I'm an indie now. I've been an indie since 92, and it changes with every new project I work on. I think that's very interesting what you just said about the game. The schools that are focused exclusively on game design, game development, don't do much in the business side. Because like, it always seems like to me, like like the general colleges and schools, the ones that aren't formerly like built to be in the game industry, it seems like they tend to focus more on like the business or the hard skill side of things as opposed to like game design and game fundamentals. But that could just be me from the outside there. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, somebody did a documentary, a friend of mine did a documentary called So You Want to Be a Video Game Designer. And you can find it on YouTube. I think there's a um, there's like an hour long and it, I mean, he talked to myself and guys like George Gomez and Jeff Nauman uh, from Bally, and he talked to Sharon Perry, uh, put the little bow on Ms. Pac-Man, and, and he talked to artists and designers and developers at Williams. He talked to, like, Eugene Jarvis and Mark Turmel and Jack Hager, and a lot of really tremendous, tremendous guys. And one of the things he asked everybody was, you know, college or no college? And a month, you know, just the dozen people he talked to in this documentary, the, you know, I was like, go to college just for no other reason to prolong adult, prolong childhood. Uh, because, you know, the four years of figuring out what life is while you're, you know, you're figuring out life while you're away from home is invaluable. Whether or not you learn anything practical, that life experience is tremendous. Where other people are like, no, no, jump right into games, throw yourself 100% into games. That's the only way to go forward in games. And like I say, two different sides on that. I mean, it was about 50-50. 
It was very interesting to me when I saw the doc that about half the people said, no, no, don't go to college. Just throw yourself into it. You know, make games your entire life. And and bought the other half said, well, no, no, uh, have a life. And but then take your life and make games part of it, mm-hmm. not all of it. So I, I don't know that, that there's any right path. That's I, that's what I took from that is I don't know that there's any right path. I think it's got to be for the individual. I, I always say follow your heart and people say that's corny, but that's what I did and it's been serving me well. And that's the thing that I hear from a lot of developers as well. Like there is no one true path to making a video game. It's the blessing and the curse of game development that I saw into people who never went to school for anything video game related. And then one day they got the the bite or the itch for it, and they started to make a game. Just that there have been people who've been wanting to make games their entire life, and then, you know, spent every waking moment to try and design one. And while that is amazing, <coughs> excuse me, it also, again, raises that issue of how do you train someone or teach them to make a video game when there is no such thing as do this, this, and this, and your game will turn out well. Right. It is, I mean, and that's where the art, you talk about the, you know, the business versus the mm-hmm. passion. The art of video games, it is an art form. It is a team process. I mean, I couldn't do it on my, by my own. Um, and it is an art form. So you've got to have everybody as much as possible. And it's never going to happen. Let me say that up front. But as much as possible, everybody involved with the game has got to have a certain amount of passion for what they do. If they're not making it fun for themselves, get out and get a job somewhere else. Uh, but, you know, we always at Game Refuge, we always tried to make it fun for everybody. And and the art of making a video game is just that. It is not a recipe. You can become an animator. You can learn all the tools. Yes. You can become a programmer. You can learn all the you know, learn to program. You can become a software programmer. The combination of and you can do it yourself. You could do, I mean, you can get a game engine and do it if you happen to be an artist or can make funny noises to do your own sounds. You grab a game engine and that's got a canned program. You can make a game all on your own and maybe it's going to be great. But the the process that I fell into 37 years ago was a group process in which part of the fun of making the game is well, what do you think about this? Well, I don't think of that. And then you call somebody else over. Well, yeah, that's a good idea. And then it's two against one. And then, no, 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 that'd be great. And here's why. Or, no, 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 this won't work. And here's why. Looking at things through different people's eyes is part of the creative process that is in itself fun to do. People are always asking me what games I play, and they don't quite understand it when I say, no, I make games for fun. That is what I do for fun is I make games. And by the time I'm d- to the done with one, I'm thinking about the next one because that's the fun for me. Um, and it may not sound like it adds up, but the art of making a video game is something I don't. Unfortunately, no one wants to hear this. It's something you can't teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn the skills. Absolutely. And you can get better and you can teach yourself how to create games but I don't know that you and and you can learn if you learn from your state mistakes, you're going to always make a better game. But I don't think I don't think you'd have to be you'd have to be very lucky to just basically hit that out of the park the first time. Yes. Out. And yeah. even that even that's possible. Mm-hmm. So keep a good thought. Be an optimist. Cup, <laughs> cup, cup, be a cup half full kind of guy or gal. 
And like with that said, there's one thing I want to ask you about, and this is one of the things I see from a lot of independent developers these days. And as we were just saying, regarding that balance of art and the business side of things, that there are developers who their first game is going to be their you know, magnum opus. It's their YOLO. I'm going to spend three to five years plus on this one game, and it's I'm going to put everything I have into it. And we've seen, like, at least from my uh, side of things, like, developers who tend to do this, that it really does become a gamble for whether or not they'll still have a future in the game industry. As you were saying earlier, in terms of when you first started out, and kind of getting that discipline along the creativity that, yes, you could make everything that you wanted, but if you didn't get, you know, something ready by this date, people were going to get fired. And for a lot of independent developers these days, like, the absolute freedom of being able to make a video game, I think, can sometimes lead to that situation of, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want, and then it's kind of like, okay, but how do I keep going if this game doesn't succeed? Because well, you... oh, That's an excellent, excellent point. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up, because I... I... I try to try to um, emphasize that with anybody that thinks they want to develop games is aim small. Mm -hmm. You will you you can sit there and spend half your life, uh, you know, like you say, five years of your life working on a game. And because you think of something new and you want to add it to it, you yes. think of something new and you want to add it to it. And, and you're in charge. No one's you don't have. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you're doing it on your own dime or maybe you're doing it on your for free and maybe everybody's working on it for free. Um, but or maybe you're a millionaire and I've dealt with people like this, too. Who I just want to keep changing what I'm going after, excuse mm -hmm. me, because I can. And I fight with those people. Yes. I have nose to nose and good friends knock down, drag out fights with people in which I I beg them to cut it off here. And start a second one, start a sequel, mm -hmm. because the people working on it, whether whether you're burnt out or not, the people that are working on it are getting burned out because you told them this was going to take a year and you're on year three mm -hmm. or they've got a job and they're moving to Toledo. And now you've got to throw away all their art because you don't have an artist that can emulate that person's style or the programmer who you had working on this went and got a real job because he doesn't want to keep working on this for free forever. If you if you aim for a small, completable, doable game, I don't care how simple it is, you get it done and then see how mm -hmm. you can sell it. And it'll, maybe you only make $100 after you know a year's effort. But you learn things about selling it that help you design into the next project even if it's a sequel or a remake, mm -hmm. you get the thing done. You keep everybody's enthusiasm. Yes, I got this done. I've made a game. I'm a game designer. I've talked to people who have been working on a game for, you know, 15 years. And it's like they say, I'm a game designer. And I just kind of look at them and said, have you released the game? Because mm -hmm. if you haven't released the game, you're a you're not. And again, this is terrible. I feel bad <laughs> saying it, but you're not a game designer. Once it's out then you can find out if you're a game designer. Once people are playing it, and then move on. And then do your next one and take all those wonderful ideas that you had while making that and apply them to something else. Because if you did do it well, or even learning from your mistakes means that your next one is going to be better. Yes. And your next one's going to be better, and your next one's going to be better. So if this one is a four-month project and the next one's a six-month project, and 
any one of those could take off. Simple does not mean bad. Thank you um, for saying you know, that. And you've got to, and and the fact that you're looking out, you know, I've been working on this for four or five years, and look, these other games have come out that have, uh, um, that would, are doing what I started out to do, and they're doing all this extra stuff because they're coming from a studio with 400 people working on it. And then you try to up your game because you want it to do include some of these things. Know when to throw in the towel. There's nothing wrong with saying, I mean, I've got several games in my history that, you know, we worked on, we were excited about, they never got produced mm -hmm. because, you know, you get them out there for that first peak or you run out of the hardware doesn't, you know, the, the hardware edition you hope that management would give you doesn't come through. I mean, I did a game, I did a game, I mean, yes, I'm known for Rampage and Xenophobe and Arch Rivals and Pigskin and General Chaos and dozens of others. But, you know, I did a game in which the player was a bikini-clad woman uh, with a, a woman with a cave woman in a fur bikini who threw boomerangs while riding on top of a giant red watermelon <laughs> watermelon eating pterodactyl who would leap up into the air and spit at giant invisible killer bees. <laughs> now that one did not take off for some reason. Now were we were we excited about it when we were working on it? Yeah, we had a ball. But you know, sometimes you just gotta cut the cut the cord and say, okay, now. Yeah, we, we had this vision and it was a fun idea, but now nah, this doesn't appeal. There's not a big enough demographic for this one to really take <laughs> off. And I've done my share of those, too. And, but you learn from them. Yeah. And importantly, you have fun with that. And, you know, people would say that's a failure. I wouldn't say that's a failure. Mm -hmm. I got a game done. I'm a, you know, I'm a game designer. I got the game done. But it wasn't a, yeah, well, I guess it was a failure. Who am I kidding? <laughs> but I learned from it. I had fun while doing it. It's a win-win. And uh, you were able and to And that's keep why it. I encourage everyone to, whatever you're doing, make it something you can manage. Make it yeah. something your team can manage. You might be willing to spend, you know, 23 hours a day doing something. But if the guys that you, and men and women that you've pulled into your group um, don't have your passion, I mean, that's that's probably the thing that the the other thing that a game designer and I'm putting up air quotes here, if you could see me, that a game designer needs to have that a lot of people don't get is you've got to keep everybody. In, you've got to be able to lead a team. Mm -hmm. You've got to keep everyone enthused. You've got to keep. And that's another skill set that that I think is part of the mix of being a true game designer is you've got to keep everybody enthused. You know, sometimes it's with money. Yeah, no, I'm going to give you a little bump for that. Sometimes it's with just, you know, uh, you know, engagement in the office or uh, outside the office. I mean, we in 37 years, I can't tell you how many long, long lunches have gone into the creation of some great game design work. Um, so but you got to you got to make it fun for the whole team. And that's another uh, thing that a game designer, another skill set that a good game designer should have. And if you don't develop it. Learn to buy around. Mm -hmm. And as you were just saying there, like being able to have that failure and keep going, like that's another thing that for a lot of, I think, newer developers and especially those like just right out of college that they don't quite understand or they're not really given the space to do that, whether right. it's because A, I, you know, I overcommit. I spend, as we said, like three, five, <coughs> ten years on a single game and then if that game doesn't succeed, you know, 
I'm done. Like I have no other income coming in. Right. Or as you said, the other side of things with the design that I'm just going to keep adding this and this and this and this in. Or, oh, somebody just made a, this kind of design, did well, I'm going to put that into my game. Or I'm just going to keep putting things in. And it is a very hard conversation, I think, for a lot of people to have in terms of being able to say, I'm going to cut this out of my game. Because as I'm sure you're well aware of, like the artistic side of making a video game, it really does become your baby. And for a lot of people, they have that trouble of, Okay, I have to cut this out of my baby. I have to, you know, solely my art piece. Very true. Very true. And it, I, Sharon, uh, Sharon Perry said it best in that documentary. It's like, uh, you know, you know, you, you sometimes you just got to, you know, say, look, this isn't going to work. It's mm-hmm. time to time to pull the plug uh, because, and that's and it's very hard to do. Yes, I mean, I'm saying it rather glibly here. Uh, but it's not an easy thing to do. And that's why I encourage people that before they start a project, they start small. Mm-hmm. They really try to start small deliberately, even if it's just bouncing a ball on a wall, get it done, put it in a package. Does it have a title page? Does it have credits? Does it only play for 30 seconds? Great, but it's done. And now I've made a game. Now I can start on the next one, which is closer to what I really wanted to do, or it's got more of the things. But getting it all done and then figuring out how you might want to sell it, um, you know. And some people people come at it with different uh, from different directions. I mean, we've had some of the most fun that games I've worked on. You know, somebody came up to us and said, "Hey, we've got the license to this major motion picture and television show." make a game out of it. They came from a pure business standpoint. They didn't care what we did. They had a, they had, they said, can you make something along these lines? And in that case, they were, they were chasing something that was popular. And then we said, well, you know, if you'll let us put our spin on it, I think we can do a lot of fun stuff with it. And the Paramount, the studio that owned the license gave us full freedom to do it. And then, so we were able to take, it came from a business passion side the guy had this business passion in business sense. Um, and then we brought what we brought, which was, okay, we're going to make this thing fun. And then we left the, you know, the selling it and the putting it out there to, to someone else. So I, 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 you know, I just, um, I rambled on so much that time. I forgot what my original point was, but if there was a point there, take it to heart. If there wasn't <laughs> disregard everything. All right. Yeah. And, Again, like when it comes to talking about game design, as I'm sure all the listeners are well aware of, we could spend hours doing it. Like, there's no such thing as a quick uh, talk about what it means to make a video game. Absolutely. Um, but I do want to at least uh, there are a few other topics I do want to discuss on the cast with you because again, I could just sit here and we can just dis- reminisce about game development until you know sometime like ten hours later <laughs> in terms of these streams or in terms of these recordings. But uh, one thing I kind of wanted to like wrap this section on because you've said this over the course of the last like fifty or so minutes. But for any developers, especially for the students listening to us right now, if you had to like I guess drill it down. Are there like a core set of skills that you think like every developer, either from an artistic, a business, or a both, or a combined standpoint, what should they learn? Like if they want to get into this industry? Oh, that, that's a tricky one. Uh, there are so many ways into the industry. It's not, and it's there's even more now. Um, I, I'm going to plug that. Uh, so you want to be a video game designer, uh, Doc? Mm-hmm. One more time. The, a lot of what that 
documentary is is people talking about how they fell into the industry. I mean, I told you, I, I backed into it. I, you know, I didn't even know I was really going in to be an animator. I, but, uh, and the, I don't think, I think you've got to go in understanding that it is a team effort. You could try and be a programmer and an artist and a musician and a businessman. And if you can do all that, I would still say get other people to bounce ideas off of because bouncing ideas off of people whose vision you trust is the best way to design games. Um, You, as an individual, take your strengths and apply them if you're an artist, if you're an animator, if you're, um, I mean, because, I mean, what is your goal? Do you want, it's two different things. Being a developer is not the same. Wanting to be a developer is not the same as wanting to be a designer. Uh, One is not necessarily an offshoot of the other, but it usually, most of the designers of my day, especially, started out as a developer. I mean, they were either a programmer who became a designer or an animator artist who became a designer. Uh, But there were still plenty of developers that never had any desire to be a designer. No, I'm, I'm here to just do the best art that I can do or the best animation that I can do or the best. So do what yours or the best musical composition within the limitations of the given system. Because in this industry, and again, that's with a lot of the schools um, that especially in the early years, they were teaching you for specific tools for specific things that you go to a company that says, no, no, we're not using that. We're using a fully proprietary set of whatever. You're going to have to learn it from the ground up anyway because we're doing a, a type of casino game that we can't let you develop on anything other than this stuff we've done internally. Um, I don't – the short version is I don't have a path and uh, I don't have a here is the core job things you need. Take your skill set that you've got writing, composition, music, art, programming, math, um, statistics, business, marketing. Take your skill set and say to yourself, that's my entrance into the industry. And then if you want to be a designer, well, then, by gosh, you got to pick the brains of everybody you know. (laughs) Once you've got enough knowledge about everything, you can be a designer. Uh, that's why I was lucky back in the day when I became a designer, the, the, I literally was picking the brains of the people around me in, of a dozen, 15 people. Uh, you get into the industry today, you may be in the animation studio department and never see a programmer your entire life. So, but you'll be making great money. So it's (laughs) all depends on whether you want to just be in the industry or then, you got to get in the industry first to be a designer, generally speaking. Uh, they don't hire you as a designer unless you've already designed a game. Mm-hmm. And they don't call a game write-up a design nine times out of ten. They've got, you've got plenty of middle management people calling themselves designers that are covering their butts that aren't going to just let you walk in off the street. you got to get in the door. Get in the door and then just you know follow your bliss. If you love making the art, keep making the art. If you're not satisfied there... Or working with people who, I mean, I always was a very much a lead, follow, or get out of the way. If I was working on a team that the guy knew what he was doing, I was happy to do everything he told me, and I would contribute where I could, and happy to work for somebody who's leading the team great. 
if I'm working, if I'm not working on a team where I interpret in my mind, and I don't have necessarily the right to because it's peer to peer, but if in my mind this guy isn't got a clear vision, I'm going to speak up more often. I'm going to say, no, no, let's do this. And with this programmer, maybe you got to beg and you got to cajole. Or with this guy, you know, you've got to do extensive write-ups, whereas somebody else, hey, you get it down on a cocktail napkin and you've got him convinced. So it's going to change for everything. And for me, it's about if I'm working on this, I want it to be a success or I want to be working on something else. And if you've got that drive, once you're in the door, there's no limit to where you can go. There's no limit to where you can go. And again, like when it comes to these kinds of discussions, for a lot of people who are getting into the game industry these days, like they can only see things or they're only being shown things from, you know, the AAA lens. As right. as we've said, like you're going to work at a studio and you're going to make decent money. Again, we're not talking about becoming millionaires, but you're going to be making a lot of money, at least compared to being on the independent space. But you better, if you, as you said earlier, if you got into this because of water physics, I hope you really, really enjoy making water physics, you know, eight hours, eight to ten hours a day. And I think well, for... And, and again, not that there's anything wrong no. with that. Not that there's any... That's why I say, you know, to a lot of people, and they think it's corny, but I say, follow your heart, follow your bliss. Because everybody, I mean, and I've learned the hard way, uh, you know, I... As I think I said earlier, every time I hire somebody, I say you're going to learn to become a designer, and not everybody wants that, mm-hmm. and not and that's not necessarily a good fit. Now, sometimes it's been a perfect fit. This guy is an excellent program. That's all he wants to do, and then I learn. Okay, I'm not going to get from that guy the type of spontaneous creative thing from that programmer that I might get from this programmer. Mm-hmm. But that guy is an excellent programmer, and he's going to. He's going to take the programming elegance to a new level. So it's okay because it is a team effort. It's not all about just what the so-called lead designer or lead designers, because a lot of my games were, you know, multiple, most of my games were multiple designers. Um, Just because one guy has the concept doesn't mean he's necessarily pulling it to where it needs to go. Um, So it's a team effort. You, you, You do what you can do and it's, because we're talking to people personally out there listening to this to say, hey, I think I want to be in this, it's going to be more difficult to to come in from the top as a designer. You're better off coming in with a skill set, whatever it might be. You're a good salesman. You're a good you're a good people person. You know, even, you know, you know, coming up, you know, ideas are the easy part. Ideas are a dime a dozen. The tricky part is taking those ideas and making them into something real. And that's what a designer does. Not because he does all the work, but because he knows who to tap to bring in the best music or the right music or the right sounds or the right, you know, programmers or the right artists and animators. And that they're all together. Once they're together, they're going to come up with stuff that, oh, wow, that's so much better than what I originally Mm -hmm. thought. So it is a it is a process. It is not a here it is. Here's the script. And then you're done after so much time. It's a process that if you're doing it right, everybody's having fun most of the time. And every and the the end result is better than the sum of its parts. That's what a great game is. Yes. And and it's so wonderful to be able to do that. I I wish you all the best of luck. I wish you all the best of luck. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, with that last point that you said about the game being greater than the sum of its parts, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with, oh no, I can't believe I forget his name. Oh, there we go, Ernest Adams. We had a talk a few years ago, and we talked about this idea of like harmonizing game design, that everything in the game works together. As you said, it feels like this was a game that was built, like there's no, I guess, quote-unquote, fat in the game. Like, everything in it is supposed to be in there. And I I like that no-fat comment, because that that goes right back to my favorite games are smaller games with limited limited resources. And by that, I mean, if you can do anything, it's not as much fun for me. And again, I'm just Mm -hmm. speaking for me now, not telling Mm -hmm. anybody else what to do. I like somebody giving me a box of limitations, and then I get to push against and think outside the yes. box. That's what's fun. And when and those kind of games have no fat. I mean, mm-hmm. games like Rampage. Rampage got conceived because they. I want to do animating backgrounds, and I was told you can't do that mm-hmm. with a midway game on this hardware. Well, why not? Because only you've got a screen and a half of of uh, of rectangles that don't scale, don't animate, don't move. You can't do anything with animating backgrounds. Forget it, Brian. I wanted to do big stuff so I could show more, you know, comedy. And I wanted to, I'd done a big characters on a a game called Zwackery and I wanted to do more big characters, but I wanted to animate the backgrounds because I saw some other arcade games that had it. And it's like, no, you can't do it. And then, you know, the guy said to me, it's like, all you can do is move a rectangle. What are you going to do with a moving rectangle? (laughs) So I looked at Sharon and I said, okay, so a big building falling down into itself, that's a moving rectangle. We cover up the bottom with a little foreground smoke. And then what knocks down a, a big building but a giant monster so I can do my big characters. And, you know, I ran out and got a couple more guys, brought them in the room. And, you know, Jeff was on board immediately and Mikey Bartlow was on board immediately. And, you know, Jim, and we knew we just had this tremendous game, which is, you know, what was why it was such a shock when we went out and were told immediately, no. Uh, but but that was all about having a limitation. I mean, if you remember the game Arch Rivals or Xenophobe, I mean, where it scrolls up and down that basketball court, uh, you know, through the entire game uh, or back and forth in, inside the alien spaceship, that is not scrolling hardware, folks. We faked that. Well, again, we were told we couldn't do a game with scrolling scrolling backgrounds. That's that same hardware that we couldn't do Rampage on. We just kept learning from how we could fake it. And having those limitations forces you to be creative. And that, to me, is where a lot of the joy of game design is. So, And those games end up with, as you said, and that's what I built off of, no fat. Everything that's in there is we used every single sprite we had. We used every single background block we had. If there wasn't a big show at the end or a big, uh, you know, big reward scene at the end of Xenophobe or Rampage. It's because we didn't have it. And our job was to was was not doing a show for a home game. Ours was in the arcade where we had to let people play from 10 in the morning till 11 at night on on buy in so that the operator could earn money. So the game would be a success. So we didn't want to waste a single sprite on some big, uh, you know, uh, ending movie like they did in later as you know and as games progress you've got more resources you can put a cool movie at the end rampage world tour has a cool movie at the end rampage does not we got a lot of crap for that by people that 
played the 768 levels and then there was nothing there. So, you know, but no fat, no fat. But they did have fun playing those 768 levels. And part of the elegance for me is that kind of no fat. We used everything we could and we reused it where we could. I have one anecdote that kind of ties back to that. Just in terms of those early days, one of the early managers um, had had uh, the uh, the hardware back in those days had four 16 color palettes. But the early manager was a programmer and he told all the programmers not to tell the artist animators that there were four palettes (laughs) because why would anybody need more than 16 colors? (laughs) This is why teams need to be peer to peer. This is why you as a creator need to know as much as possible about what everybody else is doing because you do look at things a different way. Programmer is going to come up with something that I would never think of in a million years because he knows how he can get around this shortcut. I'm going to, and about art because, or about my animation, because he knows a way he can do it more elegantly in programming. I'm going to come up with a, a thing in gameplay that the programmer is going to think is not possible just because I'm looking at it from an artist's perspective and not looking at it from what's already been written and what he's borrowing from. So, it is that group dynamic that makes it all fun. And get out there and make make the new games, people. Get out there and make those new games. Great. And again, like it's one of those topics where we're not careful. We can just keep uh, going on and on about it too. I'm trying. I'm trying to resist the I'm urge to like. I'm to sorry start. if I'm repeating myself. I do have to kind of sign off here pretty quick. Was there anything else we wanted to touch on? Yeah, I at least want to talk a little bit about arcade design, or at least about kind of your approach to it. And let's keep this a uh, hope about the next like 10, 15 minutes. But I think that will be our stop point then, if that works for you. Yeah, I've got about 10 minutes. Okay. In that case, um, and again, for people listening, we can ramble on and on, as you've already heard over the last hour. But uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on with you, Brian, because this is kind of important to today's market as well, is kind of your approach to the arcade to arcade design. Because in many ways, we can see similar parallels to mobile gaming in today's market, in that on one hand, you're designing a game. You need to make sure it's fun and enjoyable for from oh, sorry for someone to play. But as you said earlier, you also need to make sure that it earns money. It, you know, if you can have the best damn arcade game or the best mobile game, but if nobody's spending any money on it, it's a dead project. Right. So I want to get your thoughts on this again with your background both in the arcade, in the casino side, and casual gaming, like. How do you approach, I guess, combining what a lot of people think are like two separate elements together? Um, actually, a casino might be an excellent way to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Casino games have, you know, by law, can't have skill. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we we were approached by a group to do some casino game for them. They wanted to teach their group how to do kind of video game a look to it. This is way, way back now, about around the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, And then starting to talk to them, we were coming up with things that, you know, all of a sudden, well, let's patent that idea. And they seem pretty simple and pretty straightforward to us. And what it came down to is I looked at, you know, I looked at what you can do. And but since you can't make it skill, how do you engage people, uh, the casino player? And we actually came up with a patent uh, 20 years ago or so now, 17 years ago. I think the patent actually went through 17 years ago. Um, by by presenting something a certain way, 
we didn't make it a game of skill, but we made the player believe it was a game of skill. And we showed this to actually uh, back in the day that uh, it it was unbelievable. Seventy two percent of one type of casino uh, player uh, saw this game and said they'd never play a normal game again. Uh, it was it got in a bidding war between two big casino groups. And the one that eventually bought it from us was going to change every one of their games of this type to use this method. And we, we it wasn't even patented at that point. We patented it later. And uh, so and it was phenomenal. Ninety two percent of another type of player said they wouldn't go back to their regular game. And it was all about the illusion of their thinking they're affecting the outcome, but they're not. And not because we were misleading them in any way, but it was and I can't go into it, but I guess what I'm saying here in terms of designing for what the client needs and being a game designer is it's very often, I mentioned this before, it's the thing outside the gameplay that makes it a fun design or makes it a successful design. Um, arcade game design, you know, the one, the arcade owner wants the kid off in 90 seconds and the kid wants to live forever. And you can't just ask them what they want. This is important. Um, you just can't ask a player what he wants. He's going to say he's going to wants to live forever. But if he does, you know what? He doesn't come back and play it again because he beat it or because it got boring or because it didn't remain challenging. But he'll say, I want to live forever on a quarter. And same with the operator. He's going to say, I want that kid off there in, you know, this amount of time would make me earn me more money. But he's not concerned about what he really needs to be concerned about is, is the kid going to play again? And is he going to bring his friends? And is he going to grab that next quarter? Um, in the arcade games, it was very simple. Um, it's much more complex now with mobile games and how you try to monetize. And uh, the best way to monetize changes in the uh, in terms of how it's reported all the time. Um, so I leave someone else to answer that. Back in the old days, I mean, one of one of my favorite tricks was in the basketball game Arch Rivals. It was a period based game. You know, at the end of the first period, you got to put in another quarter. That's what everybody thought. Well, what we did, and I believe this was Jeff's idea, Jeff Nauman, the programmer, and it was his concept. The game was too. Um, was when the game, when the period ended, it didn't stop. Players were, are still running up and down the court. They're passing the ball back and forth. They're running down. They're punching each other. They're having a ball. The game did not stop and nobody noticed. But then the first time after the clock ran out that someone took a shot at the basket, the ball would go up and get about within an inch of the basket. And then it would say time out. <laughs> Tell me who's not going to be reaching in their court, their pocket for a quarter to see whether or not they got that basket. Those sort of little brilliant things. I mean, I, I'm so proud of the of coming up with those kind of things to make people. I mean, Rampage, that was the reason we let players eat each other. And that was one of the biggest driving things for someone who was dying in Rampage and turning back into a human, little naked human was in the arcade, they were digging in their pocket as fast as they could to put in another quarter to keep their players who were playing with from eating them. I mean, that is, it may not sound like much, but that is what I talk about when I talk about, you know, brilliance for designing for the arcade. Because arcade games are skill games and games like Dissatron or Spy Hunter are all about really, really tuning them well 
keeping them challenged for the great player and, you know, but the downside of those games is if you were a poor player, you couldn't get past level three in Disatron, or you couldn't get into the weapons truck more than once or twice in Spy Hunter. They were great games, and they're, they're for the good player and the player who's driven by skill set, they're tremendous. But they didn't appeal to the more average player that I always saw as a more average player myself. I always saw that I want to make games that there is no wrong way to play, that you are having fun and you are laughing. And that was just a different way to skin the same cat. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do people still skin cats or is that a generational thing? It may be generational at this okay. point. <laughs> All right. Don't go out and skin cats, folks. <laughs> Have them spayed or neutered, but don't go out and skin them. <laughs> and I know that we are getting close to time. So here's yeah. my last question. And again, like if you're free in the future, Brian, I would love to have you back on this. We can have like several more hours easily with some of these conversations. Um, that would be fun. I never, I never tire of talking about this, as you can probably tell. Me neither. But uh, here's my last question. As you said, in terms of getting somebody interested in playing these games and the challenge of earning money through them, as you said with some of the examples like with Arch Rivals and Rampage, like there's all manner of things you can do to, again, get somebody to go, I got to keep playing this game. And one of the more, I guess, I'm not sure I want to say a darker or more interesting conversation we're having lately is the idea of going overboard in terms of monetization, whether it's with loot boxes, uh, gambling mechanics and games, what have you. So I just want to ask you, like, do you, where do you think, or is there like a line in terms of, I guess, hitting the player with too much in terms of monetization? You know, uh, this is where I have to fall back on the I really don't follow stuff that okay. much. So I I wish I had an intelligent answer for you. We've done we've done gambling games, mobile games uh, that were designed to be arcade like games, but uh, for gamblers. And even though I told the client going into it, I said, I think you're barking up the wrong tree here. Gamblers want their return in two seconds. They don't want to mm-hmm. play a level to find out if they yeah. won or not. Having said that, um, you know, we did some fun games for them, but uh, they went away from that fairly soon after they launched their initial their products. Um, loot boxes and stuff like that. I think it's great if it's instantaneous. It's like I, I liken it to, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock film, you know, or any good film. If if the shot is so darn clever, you may get excited about, hey, I've got this clever way to get money from the player. If the player notices, you've done it wrong. Mm-hmm. If the player happily does it as a means to an end, great. You know, uh, I mean, the uh, the uh, uh, microtransactions. I, one of the, a game I did years ago called Arctic Stud Poker Run, which was like it was full contact poker with um, on rocket powered snowmobiling snowmobiles snowmobiles <laughs> with uh, guided missiles. And in a Cthulhu Mythos uh, deathmatch death match race, a group from Japan wanted to uh, buy the rights to it and create a microtransaction. And I had never heard of the thing. And, of course, so being the brilliant businessman I am, I said, no, uh, that would never work in the U.S. This is before farm <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, so I'm not the best guy to ask any of these things. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, that's an excellent example of, hey, if – I myself would look at that and go, boy, that's nothing I would think would work because it's it's counterintuitive to the game process. But 
if it makes if there is if the audience will buy it, then sell it. But if you know if like that shot in Psycho where the you know the the camera backs down the stairs, or you know uh, or you know. I'm now I'm trying to make too many illusions at once. But if the shot in the movie takes you out of the movie, you shouldn't have put it in there no matter how clever it is. And that's all I can say about the monetization stuff because, honestly, I don't know what you're talking about. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But I think with that, we will wrap things up before I keep Brian for, like, the next, like, three hours on this call. So <clears throat> to wrap things up for our cast, for the people listening who want to follow you, do you have any social media you like to plug right now? You can uh, you can follow Game Refuge on Facebook, um, Game Refuge Incorporated. You can follow me on Facebook, Brian F. Colon. Um, Game Refuge, the website. I think I probably haven't up- updated it in the last two years or more, uh, but occasionally gets updated. We've got a new project coming out here in October that I will I will be uh, lighting up the. Uh, the internet over uh, once we get that out. Um, that's going to be fun. Uh, got some really cool 2D lip sync in it that I haven't done in a while. And so I've been having fun with that. Um, and that's it. Yeah, just uh, Facebook, Instagram, you know, Brian F. Colin or Game Refuge. All right, great. So uh, with that said, we will end things for this week's cast. So for everybody listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash wblazer, as well as our Discord channel that is linked just about everywhere. And come back for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where we are in science of games. If you can follow me on Twitter, you can find me on there at GWBlazer. But Brian, again, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you or talking with you this afternoon. Again, like this is such a fascinating topic that, you know, if there were time constraints, we could just sit here and chat for the rest of the day. And, uh, and and I I would be happy to do it again. Mm-hmm. There's but, there's a lot there's a lot in 37 years to cover. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, hard to compress it down into an hour. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But with that said, once again, thank you so much for listening to this cast, and come back for more discussions here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. But until next time, take care.